the trees and plants that survived the blast and some which were only 650 yards from the hypocenter of the blast withstood the heat and are still growing and that the Japanese, it gave them inspiration and hope. This is The Butterfly Effect, a podcast that shows the big impact a small action can do. Tali Orat is talking to those special people that make a difference with nature and trees. Welcome everyone to The Butterfly Effect. My name is Tali Orad. I'm your host and your butterfly here. Today, my very special guest is the famous author, Jenny Fields. Born in Chicago, Jenny is a graduate of Iowa Writers Workshop and the author of five novels. Her last novel, The Age of Desire, was New York Times editor's choice and has just been optioned for film. Her new book, Atomic Love, is being translated into nine languages. After many years in New York, Jenny now lives in Nashville, Tennessee, with her husband and their sassy dog, Violet Jane, who we hope won't join our discussion. Welcome, Jenny, to The Butterfly Effect. Thank you, Tali. I'm happy to speak to you. You recently released a book, your fifth novel, The Atomic Love, an historic novel going back to the 1950s. It tells the story of Rosalind Porter, a young scientist involved in the Manhattan Project. I just finished reading it, a book filled with love, desire, betrayal, feminism, science. Am, am I missing something? Oh, I think you hit all the hot spots right there. It focuses on Rosalind's story during the Cold War and her conflict as she must decide whether to help an FBI agent, Charlie Sidlow. I hope I pronounce his it name is. It is Sidlow, yes. <laughs> By spying on her former colleague and lover, Thomas Weaver, who the FBI suspect is passing nuclear information to Russia. Right. What inspired that story? Well, it began with my mother. My mother was a scientist during World War II doing really important cancer research. And like many women after World War II, she was expected to give up her job when she married. It was just a given that the men coming back deserved the jobs and the women needed to go get married and have babies. My mother always said that she had her name on a really important cancer paper. And honestly, we went, oh, sure, mom. And we didn't think much about it. But just recently, right before this book came out, a friend of mine did some research and found out her paper was so important that it was referred to well into the late 1960s, even though it was written in 1948. And she gave up her job and she was so unhappy about it. She always said to me, don't ever give up your career. And it was like a real sadness within her. So I wanted to write about a female scientist. I wanted to write about a woman who somehow had given up her career and needed to find science again. And then on top of that, her cousin, who was her best friend, worked in a place called the Metallurgical Laboratory, but she would never tell my mother what she was doing. It turned out she worked on the Manhattan Project, wow. and she she worked as a technician creating those badges, the badges that people wear to find out if they've had too much radiation that people are still wearing. Mm -hmm. Here's two scientists, female scientists in a family, and neither one of them were able to hang on to their science. So... I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about that era because a lot of people 
you know, a lot of people are writing about World War II, which is a very interesting era, obviously, because it was a fight between good and evil. But what's so interesting to me about the 1950s, and um, I said it very early in the Cold War, is that people came back from the war and they wanted to be happy. They wanted to be, you know, big smiles on their face. Let's have families. Let's have a car and two kids, 2.5 kids and have a wonderful life together. But actually, a lot of the men came back with terrible PTSD, which they could not talk about. The women had had jobs that were exciting and made them feel important during the war, and they were expected to give up those jobs. So underneath all these smiles were a lot of scars, a lot of sadness that nobody could talk about. And I really wanted to capture that in this book. And and I think you did a brilliant job with that. And you actually also bring something else, not just the PTSD, you also bring that she was filled with guilt because of her involvement in creating such a destructive bomb. And, and throughout the entire book, that guilt defines her actions. Yes, indeed. And what's so interesting, and I think a lot of people don't recognize this, is that 70 of the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project They signed a petition called the Zillard Petition, which was sent to Harry S. Truman begging him not to drop the bomb on Japan. And the reason this happened was they worked on the bomb because they thought the Germans, they were sure the Germans were creating a similar bomb. And if we didn't have one, they'd just take us over. They would just bomb us out of existence. Mm -hmm. So they felt it had to be done. But they hoped it would just be a deterrent that they could say, we've got one, two, you can't bomb us. So a lot of the people who worked on it never imagined it would be used. When it was used twice on Japan, there was a tremendous amount of guilt. And even Robert Oppenheimer, who a lot of people will say is the father of the bomb because he ran the whole Los Alamos project, he could hardly live with his guilt the rest of his life. I can only imagine how devastating it feels. And Agent Sidlow was a prisoner of war in the Philippines. And Rosalind obviously filled with with guilt. When they were talking about it, and I don't want to spill much of of their discussion, but in that discussion, when she was talking about her killing hundreds of thousands of people, yet he says that her bomb saved him. Right. And bring that positive aspect to it, something that took me by surprise. I mean, I I saw it as a hint of that energy that was created, saved him and did so much destruction, but could have done something else that was much, much better. And I don't know if you were hinting on that, if that was the purpose, but it was a very strong moment, at least for me. Thank you. What I wanted to say was there's two sides to the story. A lot of people felt and still feel that if we hadn't dropped the bombs on Japan, they never would have surrendered. More lives would have been lost, maybe as many lives as were lost when the bomb fell. Of course, Mm -hmm. a lot of the lives that were lost were civilians. And I think that's one of the things that made it so hard for Rosalind. But when Charlie says, your bomb saved me, it, it makes her at least see that there was something 
that came out of it that meant something important to her because this man is a very special person and he would have died in the camps. I mean, the interesting thing about the camps, I did a lot of research on the Japanese camps, reading a lot of first person narrations, prisoners of war from that era. A lot of people don't realize that while the Germans had signed the Geneva Convention and had to treat their prisoners in a very specific way, even though they were unkind and people were certainly injured and not treated well, Mm -hmm. compared to the Japanese, they treated them better because the Japanese never signed the Geneva Convention. They could do whatever they want. They could torture their prisoners. And the Japanese concept was it's better to die than to surrender, which is one of the reasons that they believed they needed to drop the bomb, I guess, because they thought these people will never surrender. They were already in terrible shape by the time the bombs dropped. My character, Charlie, gets the brunt of that. It's He carries that pain with him wherever he goes, including the fact he's lost the use of one of his hands. You mentioned doing a lot of research and obviously research on the atomic energy and there was a time that I mean there's still a time that considering replacing fossil fuel with atomic energy and this is what Rosalind was thinking she was working towards and not obviously a weapon that will kill hundreds and and millions of people and if we're not careful right, right? It, you know the whole concept of nuclear uh, fission was that you could create an endless amount of energy, which they believed at the time was clean energy. Of course, the issue has become, what do you do with the remaining used nuclear material? And that has become kind of a a big negative of nuclear energy. And there's also the fear that there will be accidents, there will be problems like there were at Chernobyl. You know, she believed in a future that could be endlessly fueled by nuclear energy. And even then they knew that fossil fuel was going to either run out or they didn't really understand climate change yet, but they knew that it was dirty. They knew, for instance, that London was foggy all the time because of the coal dust, mm-hmm. which caused that kind of horrible fog. The EIA, the U.S. Energy Information Administration, states that nuclear power reactors do not produce direct carbon dioxide emissions. Unlike fossil fuel fire power plants, nuclear reactors do not produce air pollution or carbon dioxide while operating. You mentioned the Zillard petition back in 1945 signed by the scientists involved, or at least some of them. There is a small group of scientists, even today, that still do not see nuclear energy as the solution. It's more expensive to build, it takes many years to build, obviously compared to renewable energy solutions like wind, water, solar, And of course, there is the issue of it being weaponized, as you shared in your book. I think that a lot of people who are um, looking for answers still think that there are possibilities with maybe nuclear fusion as opposed to fission, which would be cleaner. And there are still nuclear plants that are functioning. When the atomic bomb was detonated over the Japanese city of Hiroshima in 1945, hundreds of thousands of people were killed and injured. 
Right. I'm not sure you or our listeners know, but despite many survivors believing nothing would grow in the city for decades, 170 trees survived the bombing and are still growing 75 years later. It's, it's quite interesting because when I did some research on that, The New York Times uh, stated that the trees and plants that survived the blast, and some which were only 650 yards from the hypocenter of the blast, so that would be, the, I believe, the outer ring of the depression the blast made, withstood the heat and are still growing, and that the Japanese, it gave them inspiration and hope mm-hmm. at a time when they were dazed by defeat and believed that they were... Who knew what the long-term effects were? And of course, a lot of people were extremely injured, burned. But interestingly, there are other examples of things like ferns that were nearby that had so been hurt by the blast that they had spores that were mutants. And were never could never really grow properly after that. So some things survived. Some species could handle it, and other species were just ruined forever and could not reproduce after that or were stunted or genetically different from the way they had originally been because of the nuclear blast. Right. And, and you touch a little bit about that when you described Thomas Weaver, which was one of the scientists on the project. And what happened to him because of his exposure? Again, I don't want to ruin anything. So. Right, right. Well, a lot of the scientists were not as careful with the atomic energy as they should have been. And really, I'd venture to say the majority of them were in some way exposed to the point that they ended up dying of cancer later. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, I based my character on somewhat, just her position, on a woman named Leona Woods, who did work on the Chicago portion of the Manhattan Project. She worked at Hanford, which is where they were refining plutonium for the bomb, mm-hmm. when she was pregnant. And she did not die of cancer. So it's hard to know, you know, who are the species or the specific right. people who will not be affected by uh, radiation and, and who will be affected. But certainly, a lot of the scientists were affected, just like Madame Curie was when she was doing right. her original research. Right. And, and obviously, the, the plants that you mentioned, by the way, there is an organization, it's called Green Legacy Hiroshima, that uh, has a project which try to preserve and show the, the trees that were saved in, in the mm. nuclear bombing. And what they're doing right now is sending those seedlings from those trees that survive to location mostly near nuclear plantation, basically spreading a message of hope, which I find oh, beautiful. That is beautiful. I love that because those are the trees that could stand up to an, a nuclear overload. And I guess near plants, they want to have trees that are able to do that in case, in case there's a problem like there was in Chernobyl. If Roz were to be living now, what would she say about the situation, about climate change, about everything? 
It's a great question because the thing to recognize is that in 1950, when the book is set, science was king. And I say that because in 1949, there was the polio epidemic. Children were coming down with polio in droves and they ended up, some of them died. Some of them ended up in iron lungs. They could never walk again. And in 1949, Jonas Salk invented the first polio vaccine. And it was a a miracle, just like whatever vaccine's going to overcome the coronavirus will be a miracle. Mm -hmm. So people truly believed in science. In fact, uh, one of the slogans from that era was better living through chemistry. And people believed that science would solve mankind's problems. Now we've got this anti-science attitude among a lot of the populace that is very disturbing, especially to people who understand that science is flexible, that we learn as we go along. And I believe somebody like Rosalind, who had such belief, such deep, almost religious belief in science, would be mortified by any portion of the population who didn't believe that science was important or could solve problems. Yes. And you also mentioned throughout the book that there is no conflict between science and religion. They are going to church and yet still believe in, in science. Right. Which... Yeah. Well, and, and of course, both my characters are struggling with how they believe about religion, what they think about religion. But yeah, there is, doesn't have to be a conflict between the two. And it's okay to, to question and keep on going back to that, but it doesn't mean we should ignore the facts of science. Right. Exactly. So the story takes place in Chicago, Illinois. Obviously, concrete field city. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not such a concrete town, actually. The thing about Chicago that's so interesting, I think, when you compare it to other cities, is that while there are big, big skyscrapers everywhere, you're also on one of the most beautiful natural lakes in the world. Lake Michigan is just gorgeous. You have the natural versus the big brawny man-made skyscrapers. And it's a very interesting city in that way. You know, Rosalind loves the city and, and I too love Chicago. You grew up there, right? I did. I grew up in Chicago. I haven't lived there in many, many years. I lived in New York for 25 years. And I think of New York as turning away from its natural beauty much more than Chicago does. When you live in New York, they haven't used the river's and the nearby ocean around it as much as they really, you would expect them to. A lot of it was just used to bring in goods and things like that. Chicago really respects its lakefront. And so for that, I find it very beautiful. And you also bring it up in the in the book. I love the vividly described scene where you mention the river and the park and even the tree and that she sees through her window. Nature is, you can't escape it, not even in the book. Right. And not even. (laughs) Right. And right across from her is a beach. And Charlie remembers as a child that his mother took him to the beach. And there's a sandy beach right there in the middle Mm -hmm. of the city. And that he thought, oh, the beach is for rich people because we have to go home to our much hotter neighborhood at West. (laughs) Um, But I mean, I think that's what makes Chicago so special, really. And I love your play 
with words, atomic love is the title, and there is the atomic energy per se, and also with the meaning for love, right? right. You even bring it the definition for an atom twice in the book. Right. Obviously, we'll not spoil it. But <laughs> One of the things I wanted to write about was about two birds with broken wings, people who have been injured in life, who come together and help heal each other. And I think in a lot of ways, I ended up with three people with broken wings, mm -hmm. including Weaver. And, you know, my feeling about love is, yes, it's something that makes you happy. And it's, it's, it's a nice thing. But when love is the right love, it's something that heals you, that makes you more whole. And the way I describe it in the book is that the Greek word for atom is atomis, which basically means indivisible. It cannot be divided. It is the smallest, smallest portion of the universe. Well, in fact, <laughs> what are we doing when we're creating nuclear energy? We're dividing an atom. So mm. it's kind of like the push and pull of that. But, but what she wants, what Rosalind wants in love is something that is indivisible, where two people can come together and nothing can part them. And it's a romantic concept, but It's a nice concept. When you find the person who truly can help heal you, you don't want to be apart. You don't want to be divided. Mm -hmm. And Atomic Love is your fifth book. Right. What inspires your books in general? Oh, I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, each one is different. And I, I'm just not one of those people who has a formula. And I certainly never, never outline my books before I write them or I would be bored out of my mind. I go on a journey with my characters. I try to understand them. And I try to see where they take me. So what I try to do is I give my characters an insoluble problem and I allow them to solve it for me. In this case, the problem was that, you know, Rosalind is approached to spy on this man she once loved mm -hmm. by a man who is a very different kind of man. And she needs to make a lot of moral and ethical decisions that could not just change her life, but change the life of the world and just a bigger, a bigger issue. And it, it was for me a really wonderful journey. It took me a long time to write the book. I rewrote it 10 times, literally oh. 10 times. If I find a concept really fascinating, that'll draw me into the book. Right now, I'm doing some research to write a book set during the early civil rights era. As I do my research, I learn more about what I want to say, what the point will be, and who my characters are going to be. Is there a favorite place for you to write? I'm sitting in it now. I, um, <laughs> I live in an, a stone bungalow built in 1930. In that era, they didn't have air conditioning, and it is just stinking hot in the summertime here. <laughs> and so this room that I'm in, which is quite a large room, was the sleeping porch. And it has 12 windows and a glass door. Everybody in the family would sleep on the sleeping porch. There would be sometimes six beds out here. Wow. And they would open all the windows so there'd be a cross draft. It would be like sleeping outside only. You've got a roof over your head. You've got screens to keep the bugs out. 
it's really a fantastic room because it's filled with light and I see green all around me. There's trees and they're waving in the breeze. Sometimes hummingbirds come by. So it's a, it's a really special place to write. And I don't sit at a desk. I may be the only writer who doesn't. I, I sit in an armchair with an ottoman with my laptop on my lap. And that's how I write. <laughs> Looking at the trees. This Looking at the trees. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Do you have a favorite tree? I love maples. I really do. And we had the most beautiful maple in our front yard when we first moved here 15 years ago. Unfortunately, it was almost 100 years old and the maples around here are dying. We don't really know why. We think they may have just come to the end of their lives. Maybe it's the water table. It's really hard to know, but it started to die. And it started to drop branches, and I couldn't risk that some passerby would be killed by my tree. So mm -hmm. at some point, I, we had to take it down. It was like losing a dear friend. It really broke my heart. Yes, I, I can relate to that. Right. Thank you so much, Jenny, for opening your heart and sharing with us the behind the scenes of writing Atomic Love. I hope we didn't spoil much for those who have not <laughs> read it yet. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll just have piqued their interest. I hope so. Yes, I hope so too. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tali. I really enjoyed speaking to you. And thank you everybody for joining us today. We are all beautiful butterflies, each in his and her individual ways. I wanted to thank you for joining me today in this episode. I really appreciate you coming on this journey with me and I hope to see you next time. And remember, it only takes a small action to make a big difference. Be a butterfly. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. Please subscribe to hear more of our stories of change. 